Imagine living in a time where six men kill themselves every day. And if we thought that's gonna happen in a hundred years, it sounds pretty gross, but it's actually now. Uh, you know, originally fake news starts as a critique of news that's considered to be inaccurate. It's become a term that's used now to dismiss any news that you don't like. And around one in seven young Australians uh, has a mental health condition. They are our most unwell generation that we've had. People don't accept the climate science. So if I think about how we're going to save the world, art enables us to move in that direction. Every generation faces their own moral panic over new technology, right back to Socrates, when the use of written text in books was feared. In the 20th century, wireless radio and television were apparently going to bring about the downfall of civilization. And in this social media digital age, senior lecturer in sociology at Monash University, Brady Robards, focuses on the positive impact social media brings to our lives. We've talked already about the potential negatives of social media, but Brady looks at how young people use these platforms to open communication and deal with the issues they face. Brady is currently working on a publication called Growing Up on Facebook, studying sustained or longitudinal social media use among young people in their 20s who have grown up using social media. Gemma Sharp, a clinical psychologist and body image researcher, examines the impact of social media on young people. Her latest project will create a world-first body image-focused chatbot to give at-risk young people information and tips on how to use social media in a positive way. Joining us first is Brady Robards. So my name's Brady Robards. I'm a senior lecturer in sociology and I study how young people use the internet. Dr. Brady Robards, welcome in this very unusual time to the podcast. Thanks, Susan. Great to chat. We talk a lot about social media and it's, you know, how it's the end of the world. It's ruining everything. Have people always felt this way about new technology, though? You know, when the printing press started, were there similar hand-wringing of people thinking that um, it was the end of civilization as we know it? Or is there something unique about social media? Look, I think it's a bit of both. You're right. I think every generation has a moral panic around technology. So we think about, you mentioned the printing press, but if you think about when the radio came in, people thought that this would be the, the downfall of civilization because people would sit in their homes isolated from everyday conversation, isolated from those social interactions. Um, you go further back, when, when written history started in ancient Greece, people talked about, this is going to be the, the end of um, spoken language because people will just be writing things down and sort of passing it around and people won't want to interact anymore. The great kind of conversations that happen in, in um, different symposia will, will no longer take place. So every generation has these kinds of moral panics around technology. Um, I, I think about um, you know, these kind of youth, youth panics and how technology is often linked to young people because young mm. people are often the, the ones that take up technology and that's the kind of group that I focus on in my research and and I, I wonder about the relationship between those two things and the way that people think about um, you know how we are protective towards young people but also we demonize young people's practices and then 
and therefore we kind of link the technology to them. Um, mm. But in terms of the question about is there something unique about social media, I think that it does change some dynamics in terms of the persistence of the things that we say, um, the ways that you know forms of bullying and harassment and trolling can kind of play out in ways that in the past um, they weren't able to. But but I also think there are lots of positives around ways that people can connect, um, form communities, um, form these kind of longitudinal records of their lives that they can reflect back on. So I think there are positives that I hope we can talk about as well. Yeah, well, tell me, what are some of the positives you've, you've found with social media and maybe particularly social media and young people? Yeah, so one of the projects that I've been working on most in the last few years is looking at um, LGBTIQ plus young people's social media use. And um, I think one of the really key findings that has come out of that for us is that there's an incredible, and to four young queer and gender diverse people, this won't be a surprise, um, but there's so much community building, information sharing, knowledge work that happens in these spaces that they're not getting in schools or from their families, of course. Um, for young queer people who are, are coming to terms with um, sexuality or young gender diverse people coming to terms with gender identity that doesn't fit their you know, assigned gender at birth, things like that, um, the internet is such an amazing space where people can think about access to new language that, that other people have developed that they have never heard of. Um, some of our participants, for example, talk about even a concept like feminism, that in their household that was never discussed or when it was it was a negative thing. They went on to Tumblr and suddenly they had access to this incredible repertoire of language and ways of thinking about the world. Um, young non-binary people or trans people or um, bisexual or pan pansexual people having language that suddenly describes their experience as an incredibly affirming um, process for them and, and being able to connect with other people through that language um, has amazing potential for them. So. I think that that's, that's one example. I mean, some of the other work that I've been doing is looking at how people reflect on and make sense of their social media histories. So we did this project where we scrolled back with people through their own Facebook timelines. And um, How did they find that? Of, was that? Was that oh. funny, confronting? <laughs> All of those things. It was, there was a sense of like nostalgia, embarrassment, um, shame sometimes, mm. real sadness as well. Like mm. sometimes they would they would come across posts that even though it wasn't about a particular trauma, it reminded them of something that happened when they were 16 or 17. Um, but also the uplifting things, like it was a sense of, oh, that friend I haven't spoken to in years or I really remember this trip that I took while I'm looking at these pictures. So there's that memory work that, that uncovers um, both the positives and the, the really challenging times as well. So, yeah, that was a really interesting project just in terms of thinking about how so much of our lives are inscribed in digital spaces for a generation that has grown up where with social media being normalized. Um, I think that there is this incredible longitudinal trace of people's lives and we're still coming to terms with the implications of that for young people's futures, I think. And what was the intention of doing the scroll back with young people? Was it just a trip down memory lane or was there was there a further intention behind it? It was, in terms of a methodological, I guess, question, there was something about um, 
how we as well was with my colleague Sean Lincoln, she's in, in the UK and, and we, we came together thinking about how do we make sense of um, how people's disclosure practices, so what they say on online, how has that changed over time? Mm-hmm. And it was we designed this project at the time that Facebook was coming up to its um, 10th anniversary, so it had been around for 10 years. And whereas other platforms like MySpace or LiveJournal um, had kind of gone by the wayside in many ways, Facebook at that time had really um, had this power of staying power, I suppose, where they weren't going away. And in fact, they were, they were buying up smaller platforms like mm. Instagram at the time, um, WhatsApp, and they were incorporating those the affordances of those platforms into their, the main platform. Um, now, of course, there's, people are much more critical of, of the role of Facebook in our lives. And that came through a little bit in the interviews, but... Um, is, is much more present, I think, now in our kind of popular discussion about trust and how um, what what kind of role platforms play in, in news sharing, in the way that elections work and so on. So that was the original intention. I think if we did that project today, it would be very different. Hmm. I wonder, it's interesting when you say, you know, people would look back at what they said 10 years ago and, and see how did they feel about that. And I'm sure, you know, maybe when there was times of embarrassment or even shame, um, part of it was just, you know, I was young and I said dumb things because we all did when we were young. But also I wonder if part of it is really more than any other time in history, what's uh, been socially acceptable is changing faster than ever. You know, the mm. attitudes towards different minority groups or what's okay to say about certain issues, mental health, all those sort of things are changing much faster than they ever have. Did it make people reluctant to seeing what they said, say, five years ago? Oh, my gosh, I can't believe I, I used that word that we, I now know is a slur, but at the time I didn't know. Did it make them more mm. anxious about what they were saying now, knowing that might maybe what's okay now we realize in five years will not be okay. Yeah, that, that really came through a lot actually. And it was in two senses, like in one sense, it was about, um, I guess how they were being, uh, interpreted by future employers, for example. Mm. So it was about, um, what's appropriate, what was appropriate when I was 16 versus now I'm 26 and I'm, I've finished uni and I've done some, you know, like casual and part-time work, but I'm, I'm really trying to start my career in this direction. Like I'm trying to be a medical doctor or a teacher or work for a bank or something. Um, so there was that, but there was also a sense, um, one of the key, I guess, um, processes of change in disclosure practices was around who was in that network. So when a lot of our participants started using um, Facebook, it was very much their friends. Like if they were, friending people from school, um, maybe co-workers at, at, at casual jobs and things like that. But a lot of their parents weren't on Facebook when they first started. And and as Facebook became a platform that more people adopted, um, so too did it become um, a, a different form of surveillance, I suppose. Mm. So there was, a, there was a move to a more complex landscape of social media platforms so that now you have, you know, Instagram, Facebook, you've got Snapchat, you might have Tumblr, you might be having more conversations in closed groups and different message threads. Like it's a much more complex landscape than it was um, 10, 15 years ago when, when Facebook was really starting to take off. So, but I think you're also absolutely right that the, the way in which um, public discourse around certain topics and mental health is a really great example of this has changed is really remarkable. And I think that it's, it's one of the real positives to the way people talk about sharing 
those kinds of disclosures on, on social media. But there are still, of course, conventions around what's appropriate, where the lines are, and that moves and changes for different people, sometimes based on their age, sometimes based on the kind of group of friends they have. So I think um, there are still appropriate ways or you know, there are conventions around what's appropriate for certain disclosures as well. And I think that, yeah, that, that process of scrolling back with people really revealed where the, the pressure points are on like what's too much information, what's mm. oversharing. You mentioned uh, the ways that um, social media can actually be good for, for mental health. When it does come to social media platforms and mental health, do you think it's the platforms that have a duty to protect the mental health of young people? Should it be government intervention? Should it come from elsewhere? Oh, such a complex um, issue, isn't it? I think that platforms for a long time were very much hands-off with this stuff and they were saying, we're just like a, a place for you to share ideas and stuff. But but as the last you know five, uh, even less less years have have gone on, platforms have had to stay, take much more responsibility. So one example of this is um, Facebook, uh, Instagram rather, but Facebook owns Instagram. But Instagram removing likes mm. from posts. Is there any evidence that removing the like count has made any impact on how people feel about themselves or each other? <sighs> It's too early to say, I think. Um, I haven't seen any good evidence yet. In terms of those questions about longer-term mental health, body image issues, um, I think we're, we're in a bit of a wait-and-see scenario there. It's, it's still relatively new, and but I'm sure there will be yeah data coming out in, in the next little while that, that yeah starts to show whether there's an impact on, on mental health, but I haven't seen it just yet. I wonder how much of an impact the filters will have because, uh, and especially the way we think about body image and mental health, because even Zoom has this now. I don't know if you know, but I was trying to change my background for my um, my Zoom for when I teach students just to make it more interesting. And when I was fiddling around in the settings, I found there's a little switch you can turn on where even in live video, you are permanently airbrushed. And I'm like, oh, hello. This is, <laughs> this is new. Um, so even in our... Something like Zoom, which we wouldn't think of as social media, which most of us use for business purposes, we can present quite a different image. Um, and that affects how, like, if I don't know that that feature's there or I haven't turned it on and I'm having a meeting with you and think, why are you glowing and I look like crap? Um, that <laughs> does affect people because I don't realise that you've got this filter on. Yeah, that's such, so interesting. I came across that filter on Zoom the other day too. It's called, like, the beauty filter or something, yeah. right? Like, it's in those terms um oh, the filters discussion is really interesting too and um the work that i've been doing with in um with Gemma sharp in in psychology she's looked specifically at this where some young people are literally taking airbrushed selfies of themselves into cosmetic surgeons and saying make me look like this i think you're right there is some of the work we did um with Gemma. we actually did interviews with people about their selfie practices and what what kind of impact filtering and filter work has on on their sense of um, who they are and their own self image and things like that and what we what was quite surprising from that there's a lot of research on how young women are kind of affected and um, there's a long history of course of a beauty industry around um, young women and 
but also the young men are increasingly thinking a lot about um, selfie work and filtering. And, and there was some, some of our participants talked about how before they would ever post an image to their main Instagram feed, for example, that they would check it with their friends mm. and some of their friends would do touch-ups. Mm. So they would literally have apps um, where they would go and remove a blemish or apply a filter. And so they would pass the image around digitally before they posted it. So that was one kind of interesting um, selfie kind of filtering practice. But then the flip side of that, there was also a lot of what I would call selfie work, like people turning the camera on themselves and taking photos of themselves that our participants didn't talk about as selfies. They talked about them in a more everyday communicative style. So if they were using Snapchat to sort of send photos and, and quick text updates to each other, they might take a selfie with like, neck chin, chin roll, um, <laughs> or like a deliberately, um, you know, like ugly kind of mm. performance because they wanted to show that they weren't taking themselves seriously in that context. Mm. Um, so, yeah, the filter stuff is so interesting. And, and what people – it comes down to context again, I think. Like if you're putting something on your main Instagram feed where you have all your friends and family, like you might have 500 people on there versus – what you're putting on an ephemeral kind of story on, on Instagram or Snapchat where only a smaller number of people might be following you or you've given access. Like, so the context is really key there. Um, and it's like, yeah, is this, is this a negative impact on, on young people? Or, but what also are the positives? Like if, mm. if, 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 it's, a bit, if it's fun, um, if it's like, oh, that makes me feel really good about myself. I know that's not how I might look in the mirror or it might not might, might be how I look on on the street um, but look these little kind of like flowers on my eyes or this kind of tiara or like this kind of photoshopping a beard onto myself with this kind of augmented mm, like filter mm, like mm. these are kind of fun communicative actions yeah. um, that involve that selfie work and yeah that's kind of the focus in my work but um, I'm, I am really conscious that there's that the work that Gemma's doing is is really important as well about yeah, how does this affect people, yeah, especially young people's sense of body image and sense of self and worth because I think that's a really critical challenge mm. that we're facing as well. Uh, last question, Zoom mm-hmm. filter on, yes or no? <laughs> it's a no from me. <laughs> you look very smooth. Oh, thank you. I've got great lighting at the moment. I think the key to Zoom is having good lighting. Um, I've, You're I've, telling me that now and I look like Voldemort I, <laughs> with the Susan, lighting you behind are me. Backlit. You're backlit and that's a problem. It you really need to is. pivot your whole desk right, to be facing the window so you've got some okay, natural light. Guys, turn around my bloody desk immediately. <laughs> <laughs> I can't work in these conditions. It's affecting my mental health. Um, Brady, thank you so much. Thank you, Susan. It's been great to chat. Now let's hear from Gemma Sharp. My name is Dr Gemma Sharp. I'm an NHMRC Early Career Fellow at the Monash Alfred Psychiatry Research Centre and I lead the Body Image Research Group there and I'm also a clinical psychologist. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, No worries. It's a pleasure to be with you. You're a psychologist. What impact do you see social media having on the mental health of young people? I think 
uh, young people are keenly aware that mental health is important. And I just wanted to throw in some stats, if that's all right. Yeah, please. Um, we know that uh, young people in our last Mission Australia survey in 2019 nominated mental health as the most important issue facing Australia. Mental health, that came before environment and, and other issues. So mm. they're very, very concerned about their mental health. And around one in seven young Australians uh, has a mental health condition. Mm-hmm. That's not to speak to all the um, all the other young Australians who might not meet our criteria for a mental health condition, but are feeling uh, anxious, stressed, and unwell. That's really high. So it it really is. It, it's frightening, and uh, they are our most unwell generation that we've had. Wow. So we've got a big issue on our hands, and and you spoke of social media there, Susan, and um, and the work I do, particularly in my clinic, focuses on body image concerns, and we know that these can lead to more serious uh, body image disorders, which include things like eating disorders and body dysmorphic disorder, and. It does take up a lot of my time in my clinical practice because these disorders are so prevalent in young people. Our latest stats suggest 22.2% of young Australians aged 12 to 19 meet criteria for an eating disorder. That is absolutely frightening, isn't it? So that's more than one in five. Exactly, exactly. So, And and how does that compare to, say, previous generations? It is higher, yes. Um, And I think social media, while not being the cause of eating disorders, not by a long stretch, um, certainly I think it puts a focus on uh, beauty ideals and how uh, young people may feel they don't measure up to these ideals. So I think social media really puts it out there, how we're meant to look, what we're meant to eat, how we're meant to exercise. Basically, it almost can serve as a guide for young people for how they're meant to live their lives. And because it's so curated and edited, it's a very unrealistic picture of, um, of how we should be. And that puts a lot of pressure on young people to, to try and follow these trends. Well, I mean, that does sound worrying, but uh, it's encouraging to know that you're actually doing some interesting and important research with organisations like the Butterfly Foundation. Tell us about the work you're doing and, and tell us particularly about some of the good you're seeing. I think we need some hope in this area. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think um, uh, body image concerns are definitely on our radars as clinicians, researchers, and particularly the wonderful Butterfly Foundation, who is our National Eating Disorder and Body Image Support Organisation. I've been very lucky to team up with them, as well as researchers from Monash and Swinburne, and through the Butterfly Foundation, being able to team up with Instagram, which we know is one of the most popular social media platforms for young people. And what we're building at the moment is a chatbot, which is a computer program that can have human-like conversations and um, if, if you feel like you're not familiar with what a chatbot is, you would have definitely seen them already. Like say you're looking at a product online and something pops up and says, can I help you with that? That's a chatbot. Oh, you mean all these time one. I've thought I was chatting to a real person. <laughs> totally, Susan. That's, oh. yeah, pro- probably not a real person in that instance, but possibly it would have been a real person later on in the conversation. Uh, but the chatbot is starting it for you. And, and our chatbot is 
going to be accessed through Instagram, where we know that young people are having these harmful body image conversations. And what it aims to do is offer advice to young people and also their carers about how they can use social media in a more helpful way and also provide um, positive body image skill work that I would normally deliver in a, in a therapeutic setting. So basically they're, they're getting this, um, this therapy online 24-7 because it's a chatbot and it's supported by the Butterfly Foundation Helpline so that if someone wants more support than the chatbot can give, they're directed uh, to the to the helpline who can who are sort of the in-person help. So how does it work? Imagine I'm a, a 16-year-old girl. I'm on scrolling through Instagram. At what point mm-hmm. does the chatbot intervene? I post a photo when I'm looking at a when I'm looking at someone else's things. When I start to write specific keywords, how does it work? Yeah. To my knowledge, there are no chatbots I've ever interacted with on Instagram. So I don't. I don't understand how it how does it pop up. You're absolutely right, Susan. So um, Instagram, the, the the architecture of Instagram doesn't support chatbots. So what we're doing on Instagram is targeted advertising for people we know who are at risk of developing body image concerns through, just as you said, use of certain hashtags or, or certain words, as well as certain key demographics, like being a being a younger person. We know that um, LGBTIQ plus um, people are also more at risk of body image concerns. So we know we can target these ads to particular groups and that's exactly what we'll be doing. And then once the ad pops up, uh, people can swipe on that and then they'll be connected with the chatbot, which is hosted by Butterfly's website. Mm-hmm. So you're so you're looking for sort of some key things to sort of trigger the chatbot to, to appear with the ad? Absolutely, yeah. And this is... This is harnessing the technology that the advertisements use already. So we know that if people are looking at certain kinds of sites, they like particular things and you'll get advertisements in your feed that um, you're likely to be interested in. Uh, But the plan is that the chatbot will be launched later this year on Instagram. That's exciting. Are there any other ways that young people use social media to help their mental health? We know it can certainly play a role in damaging mental health for a whole host of reasons. Is it... Mm. Can it ever be used for good beyond the bot? Of course. <laughs> I mean, obviously, we like to think that our bot is the be-all and end-all, <laughs> but social media has been used for good since social media came into existence. And I think um, social media is a very important tool for young people, particularly if they're feeling isolated in their school and, and family communities. I, I think um, it helps them find like-minded people and they can potentially support each other through tricky times. So I think that sense of connection is the, um, I suppose, the strongest thing social media can do. Social media platforms themselves have a responsibility to be doing more to help young people and um, their mental health or even not even just young people but just everyone, I suppose. Or do you think that needs to come, does that need to come from governments? Whose job is it? It's a great point you raised there, Susan, about it not just being young people but um, everyone on those platforms. And I don't think it is the social media platform's responsibility alone. I think it's a shared responsibility between the platforms, government, policymakers, mental health professionals, organisations like Butterfly, researchers, etc. I, I don't think it should be up to the platform themselves. And I'm, I'm not sure that they necessarily always have the resources and expertise to have all the right answers for this. So 
I'm really glad to see platforms like Instagram teaming up with organisations like Butterfly to, to make really cool interventions. I guess I wonder if... Okay, I don't know if you, you feel free not to answer this, but do you think should we just get rid of social media? I wonder if on I'm if, I'm happy to answer that. No worries at all. If um, is it overall is, on a weight of on a weight of good versus bad? Should we just set it all on fire? <laughs> I I would say no way. Um, I think social media is here to stay. I think it is a fantastic tool that we can utilize for good. Um, and I, I can see social media being superseded with something else in the future. I, I think, you know, we had television, magazines, movies, etc. in the last century. We've seen social media this century. Who knows what's next in terms of um, uh, sort of social connectedness tools. So I, I think it's about us working with it rather than fighting against it. Thank you so much, Gemma. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Well, that gives us some hope for the future that social media might not be the downfall of us all. On the next episode, we'll be talking tips and strategies for managing mental health and social media. Most of us use it, so we need to find out from the experts how to make it a useful tool and not just a time suck. Thanks to our guests today, Brady Robards and Gemma Sharp. That's it for this episode. More information on what we discussed today can be found in the show notes. Bye.